took a, took a break from Acts, and we've come back to it, beginning here in Acts chapter 9. We're going to be in verse 20. So last week we talked about Paul and this picture of his conversion. He was converted on the road to Damascus. And in his conversion, he went from being a persecutor of the church to a proclaimer of the gospel. And we see that when he is prayed for by Ananias and the scales fall from his eyes, the Bible says that he immediately began to preach to Christ. We see this obedience to God brings great blessing to our life and to the lives of others. We see this in the life of Saul. He went from being a persecutor to a proclaimer, a rejecter and an opposer of the way to a follower of the way. And his obedience to Christ brought great blessing, not only to his life, but to the lives of others. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 20, I'm going to read through verse 31. Follow with me. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem? And has he come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple." But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and what he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Father, we ask that you would take this word, take your gospel today and work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit to mold us and to shape us, to renew our minds, that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus, that we would be, as you have called us, salt and light in this earth, that we would be a bright light and a witness to Jesus Christ. We pray that this would be to your glory, Father, and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here... We see Saul now going from being this persecutor to this proclaimer of the way. So this is what the followers of Christ were called. They were believers of the way. Jesus said, I am the truth, the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
And so what we commonly call Christians today was originally called the way. And Paul was a persecutor of the way. And now he's become a preacher. It says he immediately rose up and preached the Christ. We see that preaching is a natural result of conversion. Immediately Saul preached the Christ. Preaching is proclaiming. Very simply put, specifically, we're talking about proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Preaching or proclaiming Christ is something that every believer is called to do. We most commonly think of preaching as something that professional ministers do. Pastors preach, teachers preach, and we think about it being done behind a pulpit or a podium, but the reality is we need every body. Every believer should be preaching. Every believer should be proclaiming Christ. In fact, until we have more preaching outside of pulpits by people not in professional ministry, we're going to continue to see the decline of the church in our nation. And we talked about that last week. We looked at the most recent numbers that show the decline, the continuing decline in the church. And we can say, well, All of those aren't necessarily Christians, but what we do know is over the years, over the decades, where they have consistently surveyed the population, the number of people within the population that profess to be Christians is on a rapid and a steady decline. And the only reason that can be taking place is because the church is not doing what she is supposed to be doing. Namely, she's not preaching Christ. And we can't leave it up to just pastors and men and leaders who stand behind pulpits and preach on Sunday mornings. That's not getting the job done. That is obviously necessary and vital because according to Ephesians 4, my responsibility as a pastor as a teacher, is to equip you for the work of the ministry. But what is the work of the ministry? It's your work to go take the message of the gospel out into the world, for you to go out and preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, or to do what Jesus has commanded us to do, recorded for us in Matthew 28, what we commonly call the Great Commission. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Jesus tells all of his disciples, do you count yourself a disciple of Jesus? And if the answer to that question is, yes, I do count myself a disciple of Jesus, then you need to know that Jesus has commanded you personally to go out and to make disciples. Obviously, that is not happening in the way that it should because we're seeing a decline instead of an increase in those who profess to be Christians. But worse than that, more importantly than that, this is not just about people answering right to a survey. Because anyone can call themselves a Christian, 
But when we begin to see the amount of decline in our nation, when we begin to see the very foundations of our culture begin to disintegrate and things that were so commonly thought to be true and things that we just took for granted for so long now being called into question like someone's gender. Like we don't pay attention to biology anymore. It doesn't matter what your chromosome division is. If I want to be a certain gender, all I have to do is identify with that. And now we say biology doesn't matter anymore. And we see those very fundamental things being called into question, which are directly opposed to God and the created order. The Bible says in the beginning, he created them. He created them male and female. People today say this binary gender thing has got to go. Well, listen, if the binary gender thing has got to go, then what we're really saying is God has got to go because God created a binary gender system. There's only two genders, male and female. That's true for humans. That's true across the animal world. It's true for everything. That is defined by gender, male or female. And when we begin to see very fundamental things such as that, that you don't even have to call yourself a Christian to believe, being called into question, we know that the very foundations of culture are being called into question. That is because the church is not obeying Jesus. The church is not going out and making disciples. And the only way we can go out and make disciples is to go out preaching, proclaiming, Christ. So this is what we saw with Saul. At his conversion, there was an immediate transformation. There was an immediate change in who this man was. His conversion produced in him a desire, a motivation to proclaim Christ. And it must do the same in us. Then we saw in verse 20. Two, that it says, Saul increased all the more in strength. So our conversion should result in our preaching and proclaiming Christ, but our conversion should also produce in us an increasing strength in Christ. Conversion is not an end. So when you get saved, when you know you've been saved, that's not the end. That's, that's a beginning. Conversion is not an end, but the beginning of increasing strength. Jesus said to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, you must be born again. Jesus used the metaphor of a child being born to describe what happens when we're saved. And he used that metaphor to apply in every imaginable way. He could have said anything, but he said, unless one is born again. Who caused you to be born? Well, it wasn't you. You didn't have anything to do with it. You say, my parents did. Yeah, but you didn't. But here you are. And when you were born, when you were a child that came forth, the reasonable expectation was that you were going to increase in strength. When a child is born at the beginning of its life, they're in the very beginnings of that life of that child. 
Life began at conception in that womb. And when that child was born, that child came forth. And the expectation is growth and maturity. When a child is born, the expectation is that the child will grow in strength. This word strength, this word translated strength here in the scripture is a word that literally means it will grow in capability, in ability. So when it says that Saul increased all the more in strength, it wasn't talking about his muscles getting bigger. It wasn't talking about him now just being able to see physically when he was blind. It was talking about an increase in strength in every sense of the word. In the context of this word strength here in Acts chapter 9, it means that we grow to become more capable with an ever-increasing ability and capacity to do all things. So a child is born with the ability to walk, but they can't walk when they're born. What do they do? They grow and they increase in strength, and then they are able and capable of walking. And the more they walk, the more they grow, the more they mature, they can walk, they can run, they can leap, they can do things that they could never imagine that they were able to do when they were little babies. That's the process of growth and maturity. We understand this physically as we watch children grow up. We need to understand this spiritually as we grow up in all things into Christ. Our increase in strength is spiritual, it's emotional, and it's physical. Saul's transformation was all three. It was spiritual, it was emotional, and it was physical. I mean, he becomes blind, and he has to have someone lead him to Damascus, take him to this house, and he is sitting there blind, fasting, waiting for God to do something. And God, unbeknownst to Saul, speaks to a guy named Ananias and sends Ananias to the house. And Ananias, remember, is, is like fearful. It's like this guy's a persecutor of the way. You're going to send me to him to pray for him? He'll kill me. God says, no, don't worry. He's my chosen servant. You go pray for him. And Ananias obeys God and he goes and prays for him. So here God is speaking to Ananias while Saul is what? Blind? Not knowing what's going to happen. And all the while Saul is not knowing what's going to happen. And he's blind. Can you imagine what Saul must have felt like? Can you imagine how disconcerting that must have been? But all the while Saul is waiting there in his blindness for something to happen. God is working. That should be a lesson for all of us. You may feel hopeless helpless, blind, unable to do anything. Can you imagine being the apostle Paul, being Saul of Tarsus, waiting in that house, blind, not able to do anything, completely dependent upon everyone around you? You are the guy who's been killing Christians, arresting Christians. You know how many people probably wanted to get revenge on this guy, and here he is blind and helpless, not knowing what's going to happen. But God was working the whole time. Sometimes we think, God, do you know? 
Do you know my condition? Yes, he knows your condition. God, are you going to help me? Yes, he's going to help you. Well, how are you going to help me? Well, he might not tell you how he's going to help you. He might not tell you when he's going to help you. But you can be sure that if you are God's chosen vessel, if you know Jesus, if you're trusting in Jesus, if you are a child of God, trusting in Jesus, you can know that God will help you. You don't have to know how he's going to help you. You don't have to know when he's going to help you. But you should know that God will help you. What should we do? We should stay faithful. Saul couldn't do anything. He was blind. God put him in a position where he could do nothing but sit and wait. Sometimes, as helpless and as hopeless as we may feel, that is the best place for us to be. Where we are left with no recourse but to sit and to wait for God. Ananias came, he prayed for Saul, and the Bible says scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. And he increased in strength all the more, and he began to preach the gospel. To walk in the Spirit and to live for Christ encompasses our whole being. When we talk about increasing in strength, we're talking about increasing in strength in our whole being, physically, emotionally, and most importantly, in our spirit. And this is what we see with the Apostle Paul. When we're born again and begin to walk in Christ, we begin to increase in strength. We begin to strengthen our ability and our capacity spiritually, but also physically and emotionally. When we see this so clearly with Paul the Apostle, as we see how he paid a price physically to preach the gospel, he was persecuted as much as he persecuted the church. He became persecuted himself. And there was a physical strength that had to be there for Paul to be able to endure that. And that strength, even when Paul felt like he could not go on, and this is recorded for us in 2 Corinthians, and he's begging God to remove this thorn from his flesh. And God says, no, I will not remove it. You know, this flies in the face of what we often hear preached and taught in churches. That if we just have enough faith, God will remove our infirmity. He'll remove our sickness. But in this case of the Apostle Paul, God specifically told him, I will not remove it. And then God says to Paul, Paul, in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. When you are weak, God says, I am strong. That is something we should all remember. When we talk about increasing in strength physically, it's not just being able to endure everything and be able to, to overcome everything physically. It's being able to rest in our physical weakness even and knowing that in our weakness, he is strong. To increase all the more in strength 
is to increase in the fruit of the Spirit. To increase all the more in strength is to increase our capacity to walk in the Spirit. It is obeying Christ and not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. To increase in strength is to increase our capacity for the fruit of the Spirit to be manifest through our life. I believe this is the truest meaning of of what it means to increase all the more in strength. To endure the trials and the tribulations of life spiritually, emotionally, and physically requires the grace of God working in our life. His grace is most clearly manifest in our life through the fruit of the Spirit. In the midst of trial and tribulation, an even, an even abundant blessing, our ability to manifest love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control is vital for our life and it's vital for our proclamation of Christ. People don't care much about what we have to say if there's no follow-through in our life. Talk is cheap if there is no follow-through. That's why when we talk about salvation, when we talk about these things such as increasing in strength or being a disciple of Jesus, it's not just what we say. It's got to become who we are. It's got to be manifested more than what comes out of our mouth. It's got to be in our heart. Jesus said this, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. People can parrot things and say things what others want them to hear. But over time, what is in a person's heart is what's going to come out of their mouth. And what's in our heart is what's going to be demonstrated as we live our life. And the good news is, it doesn't matter how bad our life was or how opposed to Christ our life was. We see, for instance, with Saul of Tarsus, who was an opposer of Jesus, a rejecter of Christ, and a persecutor of the church. In one moment, God touched his life and flipped him and turned him into a proclaimer of the gospel and increased his strength spiritually, emotionally, and physically, and he became a proclaimer of the way. Our increase in strength can be proportionally measured by the increase of the fruit of the Spirit in our life. The effectiveness of our witness is proportional to the Spirit's fruit in our life. Our ability and capacity to make manifest the fruit of the Spirit emotionally and physically is a sign of our increased strength spiritually. Our ability to manifest the fruit of the Spirit emotionally and physically is a sign of our increased strength spiritually. In other words, we can't just know what the fruit of the Spirit is. Our life has got to demonstrate it. Saul's increase in strength signified a growing confidence in the proclamation of Christ. There was a boldness in the knowledge of the truth that enabled Saul to prove that Jesus was the Christ. That proof was heard in the words of Saul, but more importantly, it was reinforced through the life of Saul. 
The great persecutor of the way was now the great preacher of the way. So people heard that Saul had become a preacher of the way. People heard that Saul was converted and was no longer an enemy of Christ. But guess what they didn't believe? They didn't believe the words. So in Damascus, they didn't believe. In Jerusalem, they didn't believe. Says, oh, we know this guy. Yeah, we hear what the report is, but we've seen what he's done to the church. He's arrested our family members. He's put to death those people that we love. So we hear what you say, but we have seen who he really is. They didn't believe the words. Why? Because they saw the fruit of his life. It was not until Paul began to demonstrate a different kind of fruit. It was not until Paul began to manifest the reality of his conversion and when he began to not just say the right things, but he began to live the right things and do the right things, then men began to believe his witness. Because our witness has got to be more than just what we say. Our witness has got to be how we live. Otherwise, people will not believe it. There was a boldness in the knowledge of that truth that enabled Saul to prove that Jesus was the Christ. Saul was not afraid to proclaim the truth in the face of opposition. And he endured that opposition spiritually, emotionally, and physically throughout his ministry. Just as Saul was not fearful, neither should we be fearful of opposition to the gospel. In fact, we should expect it and we should be strengthened to face it. It says that he spoke boldly in the name of Jesus. So our conversion should result in us proclaiming the Christ. Our conversion should result in us increasing in strength. Our conversion should produce in us a boldness for Christ. This is part of increasing in strength. As we grow up into Christ in all things... We must increase in our boldness to proclaim or to preach Christ. As believers, we have a boldness to tell our story of how Christ saved us. We don't need a Saul of Tarsus conversion story. Everybody wants to have a Saul conversion story. And sometimes we do such a disservice when we talk about giving a testimony or sharing our testimony or how we came to faith. And, and you'll hear people being apologetic. Well, I don't have a real, you know, spectacular story like Saul did. Don't ever apologize for however you came to faith in Christ. All of our stories are different, but none of our stories are without the miraculous power and grace of God working to save us. I promise you, there was no greater power exerted in saving Paul than there was in saving you. That is the truth. The Holy Spirit has converted us and he continues conforming us to the glorious image of the Son of God. So listen, this is the truth. Whether you cannot ever remember a time when you did not believe. Listen, if we do our jobs right, these children should should they should have to think really hard about a time in their life when they did not believe. 
If we do our jobs right, that's how our children should grow up. I didn't grow up that way. I remember very clearly when I was 23 years old coming to faith in Christ. But whether that's your experience or whether you're like one of these little ones who will never know the moment they were converted, they just know they've always trusted in Jesus. It doesn't matter what your story is because it takes the same power to save us regardless whether we cannot remember a time when we did not believe or whether we can remember the exact moment we surrendered our will to Jesus in a road to Damascus experience. We are all saved the same way. We are saved by the power and the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. If you are in Jesus, if you are trusting in him and you know you've been born again, you have nothing to apologize about. Because your story seems less spectacular because the reality is all of our stories are spectacular because it took the spectacular, miraculous power of God to save every one of us, whether we were 23 years old or whether we were 23 days old. God knows when he causes us to be born again. And none of us knows exactly when we were born again. We just know we were because here we are trusting Jesus. Just like the only reason you know the day you were born is because someone recorded it and showed it to you. But if you didn't have a birth certificate, if you didn't have a mama or a daddy or someone that said you were born February 27, 1961, if you were just here and no one ever told you, you wouldn't know when you were born, but you would know what? You would know that you were born. How would you know that you were born? Because here you are. Well, that's the mystery of being born again. And that's exactly what Jesus said in John 3. When he tells Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is trying to wrap his mind around being born again to the point that Nicodemus says, what, do I have to go into my mother's womb a second time? And Nicodemus was old. And that was a problem for Nicodemus because his mama was already gone. And if I got to get back in my mama's womb and come out again... That ain't going to happen for me because she's dead. And Jesus said what? He said, no. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say you must be born again. And Jesus says, do you know where the wind comes from? No. But do you see it? Do you feel it? Yes. Do you know the wind is here? Yes. How? Because I can see it. I can feel it. Do you know where it comes from? Nope. Do you know where it's going? Nope. But you know it's here. Jesus said that's the way it is when we talk about being born of the Spirit. If you can remember wanting God, desiring God, seeking God, praying for God, you can know that you were born again because Romans 3 says there is none who seek after God, no, not one. There is none who is good, no, not one. There is none who desires God, no, not one. Well, how did you come to seek? How did you come to desire? How did you come to search for him? Because God caused you to be born again. Because God raised you from death to life. He did exactly what he did with the apostle Paul. 
You were blind, but now you can see. He brought you out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. He brought you out of death and into his eternal life. And when we are born again in our conversion, we are given a boldness to proclaim Christ. Our salvation should come with a boldness and a strength to preach, to proclaim the Lord Jesus. We proclaim him in word and in deed. As we seek him, God will equip us and strengthen us with a boldness to make his name and his salvation known. It says then that Paul disputed against the Hellenists. If you don't know what a Hellenist is, the Hellenists were Gentiles who were converted to Judaism. They weren't natural-born Jews. They weren't descendants of Abraham. They were Gentiles. They were Greeks who decided they wanted to become Jews, and they converted from their paganism to Judaism. And these Hellenists were some of the most radical and zealous Jews there were. And our conversion should produce in us an ability and a willingness to dispute against those who oppose the gospel. Vain arguments are not profitable. And the Bible says stay away from them. But our ability and our willingness to give a defense of our faith is scriptural. We need to be willing and able to give a reason for the hope that is within us. That does not mean we need to be Bible scholars. Please understand this. It does mean that we need to be those who know God has powerfully and miraculously saved us and changed us from the inside out. That's how change takes place. Just like that's how fruit grows on a tree from the inside out. We don't go to H-E-B and buy our apples and glue them to our trees and call them apple trees. Apples are produced from the inside out. That's how the fruit of the Spirit is produced. That's how our salvation and our change must be manifest, from the inside out. We must be people who will communicate the miraculous reality of our salvation in Christ. That means we are to be people who desire and seek to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give of a. Um, excuse me, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil." We should always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks us a reason for the hope that is in us. We should be ready to dispute against the lies and the vain philosophies of the world that hold men captive and seek to oppose the gospel of Christ. The Christ who saved us is the same Christ who must save those in this world who merely exist without him. Listen, for those who are without Christ, they're not living. They're just merely existing. 
And there is a difference. He commands us to make his name known and to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that Christ commands. We do not need to go looking for disputes because if we are loving God and living the gospel and walking in the way of Christ, disputes and opposition will come. Listen to the words of warning that Jesus gives to his disciples, which means he's given those same words of warning to us today as his disciples. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my namesake because they do not know him who sent me. And in John 16:33, Jesus made this promise that we would have tribulation in this world. But that promise is carries with it the command to be of good cheer. Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. We must remember that disputes will come, persecutions will come, spiritually, emotionally, for certain, and perhaps even physically, if the heart of God's people and our nation is not turned back to God. Jesus is our hope, and there is great blessing in our obedience to Christ. Then it says that the churches had peace and were edified. Our conversion should produce in us God's peace. Peace produces edification. That word edification means to be built up. So peace produces a building up. The proclamation of Christ is the proclamation of peace. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. Peace that the church has had is indicative of the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is indicative of life. And life is indicative of growth and fruitfulness and the building up of the body in love. This is what Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4 verse 15. Paul writes, but speaking the truth in love... You may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, that's all of us, every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Unless we are all joined and connected together, there cannot be every part doing its share, supplying what the other needs, and there will not be a building up or a growing up in love. Peace and edification go hand in hand. Fear involves torment and is destructive. But peace in the love of God builds up. There can be no building up of the body in love if there is no peace. Peace is not first known as an outward condition. You can look cool, 
calm and collected like a cucumber on the outside, but have no peace on the inside. People are very good at putting their faces on and hiding their emotions, their true emotions. Peace is not what's out here. Peace is what's in here. And if peace is in here, then the peace will be out here, not just to hide for a moment, to hide from people, but that peace will be there always and eternally. Peace, true peace, can only be found in Christ, for he himself is our peace. The peace Christ gives to those who trust him is called peace that surpasses understanding. And then it says, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they, the churches, were multiplied. Our conversion should produce in us the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That may sound contradictory, but it is not. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of understanding. These are necessary for the church to be multiplied. And this is true because the fear of the Lord, as Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. The comfort of the Holy Spirit is the strong encouragement needed for the faithful and committed planting and watering of the good seed of God's word. The proclamation of Christ and his gospel is the broadcasting of that seed. Walking in the obedient fear of the Lord and the powerful comfort of the Holy Spirit is necessary to fulfill the commandment of Jesus to make disciples, to baptize, to teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit will lead the church to walk in obedience to Christ in the power of the Spirit. In our obedience to Christ, God has promised that he will bless and multiply his church. Did you hear me? In the obedience to Christ, God promises that he will bless and multiply his church. As we faithfully plant and water, God will multiply and bring increase to his church. This does not happen free of opposition. We have an enemy that opposes us. We have a continuing spiritual warfare taking place all around us. And as the people of God, we must be aware that the plan and the purpose of God has been opposed by the enemy since the beginning. That's why the serpent came into the garden at the very beginning because there has been opposition to God's plan and God's purpose since the very beginning. And do you know who has allowed that opposition to take place? God has. Do you think God could not have expelled the serpent from the garden? Certainly he could have. He allowed the serpent to come in. He allowed the first Adam to fail in his responsibility so that the second Adam could come and fulfill the responsibility the first Adam did not fulfill. The first Adam did not die for his wife to protect his bride, but the second Adam came and he died to save his bride. And we are that bride. We are the church. As the people of God, we must be aware that the plan and the purpose of God is opposed. Our enemy has been defeated by Christ, but that does not mean we have no more opposition. Opposition. 
What it does mean is that our opposition, as strong and as destructive as it can be, and it can be very strong and very destructive, it cannot ultimately change the victory that Christ has already won. The plan and purpose of God is being worked out in all things. The author is still writing his story, and it is with any good story, you you realize every good story has conflict. Why do you not go to movies or read books that have no conflict? I told someone the other day, even Hallmark movies have conflict. As benign as they may be, even a Hallmark movie has conflict. And my mother-in-law is addicted to Hallmark movies. She, She watches them incessantly. She loves them. Even Hallmark movies have conflict. There is no good story that is void of conflict. Though there is surely conflict, we have won the war. Christ has gotten us the victory. The battle rages, but the war is won. The author is still writing his story, and we are parts of his story. He is the subject. He is the main character. We are just supporting characters in his story. We live life as if life is about us. We want to make ourselves the main characters. We are not the main characters. We're not even close to the main characters. He is the main character. We are here for his glory. What it does mean is that our opposition is still here, but it has been defeated. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians 2 verse 13. And you being Dead in your sin and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, in the cross, in his victory. This is the good news we are commanded to preach and proclaim with all of our life. May we do that to his glory and to our great blessing. May we, the church, walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, being multiplied by God, giving glory to God in all things. Amen. And this table that we are getting ready to come to reminds us of these truths, reminds us of why we have a reason to preach and proclaim, to declare the good news. Because Christ is risen. He is alive. We have an enemy, but he has been defeated. We are parts of his story that is still being written, and we are called to be faithful in all that we do. And there is great blessing associated with our faithfulness, with our obedience. As Christ was obedient to his Father, let us be obedient to Christ and our Father in all things. Amen? As you trust in Jesus, as you have become a part of his covenant people, come to this table, come to Jesus, declare his death, declare his life, Rejoice and be thankful for the salvation. Amen.
Well, let's stand. I will give you your charge. There's a scripture. Jesus says that we'll give an account for every idle word we've ever spoke. That's in particular uh, fearful for me because I'm, I speak a lot of words. I talk a lot. But I'm thankful for Jesus and I'm thankful for His grace. Our conversion should mark a difference in our life. In other words, our salvation should show. Talk is cheap. Words are cheap. Our life should mark our salvation and how our lives bear witness to that salvation. This is what it means to be a new creation. This is what it means to be born again. This is what it means when the scripture says the old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It doesn't mean no more struggle. It doesn't mean no more temptation. It doesn't mean we never fail again. It means a new life, a new message, a new strength, a new boldness, and a new peace. It means a new normal as we are being built up in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. This is the newness that God has brought us into as his church, as his people. It's the newness that God commands us to walk in. And as we walk in that newness, God promises to bring the increase, the increase of the church and the proclamation of Christ. That proclamation of Christ the church and its proclamation of Christ is salvation to the world. Therefore, let us faithfully preach and faithfully proclaim Christ with our words, yes, but most importantly, with our life. Amen.